Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Helen Russell, the author of How to Be Sad. Helen is a journalist, speaker, and best-selling author. She has spent the last 10 years studying and speaking on cultural approaches to emotions. You can learn more about Helen's work at helenrussell.co.uk. In the conversation, Helen and I discuss the meaning of sadness, grief and depression, making space for sadness, accepting how the world works, the perils of perfectionism, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoy this conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Helen Russell. Well, Helen, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Lovely to join you. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to have you. And today we're going to be discussing your book, How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad. I've really enjoyed going going through this book and reading it over the last couple months, so I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, we generally spend a little bit of time in... Talk about you, how your particular journey in life got started. So you're a journalist, an author, a speaker. You've obviously written extensively on happiness. How did this all begin? Ha, huh, well, yeah, as you say, <laughs> I I had been uh, happily carrying on with my career writing um, for newspapers and magazines, and I wrote a book just before the world changed, pre, pre-lockdown, called The Atlas of Happiness, um, about the unique cultural concepts that are helping people stay afloat around the world. And when that came out, and when we could do speaking tours way back when, I would stand up in events, and there would always be someone who would ask something like, along the lines of a paraphrase, but, um, you know, how can I be happy? Maybe at times in their life when they just lost someone, or they've been made, made redundant, or they've had a relationship breakup, um, or even experienced homelessness. And, and just this idea that we should expect happiness, or that we should want happiness at times when actually, it's a logical response to be sad. That that felt quite um, quite quite sad to me that the idea that we weren't comfortable enough with not being happy. So I felt maybe I'd done a disservice in my work to date, and I should I should explore the other side of of life as well. Well, nice. I'm I'm glad that you did. Um, we typically start with defining terms and things like that, and um, maybe a straightforward question, but it, it it could be helpful to start with just. What is sadness? How do you think about it or define it? Oh, interesting. I think it is the natural response when we experience loss or disappointment, um, when things don't go our way, which they don't for many of us. So I'm I'm very clear to define between um, sadness and depression. Um, depression is a you know, chronic state. I've experienced both, whereas sadness is this temporary unhappiness. 
And that's completely normal. And I think part of the problem and part of the issue I wanted to address is that normal sadness has been kind of pathologized in recent years. It's Mm. been um, made into a problem that needs to be medicated away or solved rather than being a normal state in life that we will all experience. So I I guess those are the terms I like to work within. Mm. And how about another term of... um you know, grief. Oftentimes you think of of sadness, the loss of of a loved one. How do you differentiate if you do between, you know, sadness and grief and as we navigate life? I I certainly think that grief is a form of sadness, but I think, you know, we are thinking about grief as specific to a loss. Um, It can be a living loss. I, I think many of the psychologists and experts I spoke to for this book explained it to me in those terms that you can, you know, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a, a parent, perhaps that, that leaves your life for some reason. Um, so so not purely bereavement. But I think um, grief, we used to be um, a little better equipped with it, I would say. I, I always point to the DSM uh, five, this idea where um, it used to be that when you were grieving, when you just lost a loved one, you couldn't be diagnosed um as having depression, for example, um, because it was just considered normal that you would be really sad when you were experiencing grief, when you had lost a loved one. And in the latest iteration in the DSM-5, as I say, um, this this nuance was done away with. And and actually then people experiencing normal sadness when they lose someone could be diagnosed as, as having depression. And the diagnosis uh, criteria for depression are fairly arbitrary. And again, I, I speak as someone who's had experience of depression. Um, and so I just felt that that was really important to um, kind of, it's been doing people a disservice to to write off our normal feelings of loss and sadness when we experience a bereavement or a living loss as depression isn't always accurate. I found it really interesting going through the book on on uh, this particular podcast. It's primarily a philosophy podcast, and we explore obviously a lot of different wisdom traditions. Um, but it seems like in my own experience, sadness can be difficult to even spot. Like sometimes I think of uh, maybe like the many names of of sadness. Like if you think of like anger and frustration. Um, There's a particular philosopher I like, Seneca, who wrote quite a bit on anger and talks about, um, you know, a particular event. And then you have, you know, a response to that event, which might be anger. And then in between that, he talks about like this, the judgment is where this comes from, some sort of impression or judgment. And it seems like in my experience of exploring some of that, it's like even sometimes the anger is sadness. You know, it's like the frustration sometimes of daily life of like exploring it a bit. You know, there's some sort of sadness, you know, that is um, connected there in some ways. So like, how do you think about just even identifying it, even like noticing it, spotting sadness? I think you're right. A lot of people find it difficult because we are so um, we are so used to trying to avoid it. I think we are not encouraged to experience it, and that's not a universal. I mean, that's that's a recent phenomenon, and it's largely I think the US and the UK we are particularly bad at sadness. I would say there are other cultures where it is much more accepted that you can feel happy and sad at the same time, or that there is a nuance, or there is not a value judgment placed on the experience of feeling mm. sad. It's not seen as a bad thing. 
but I guess to to take the anger point, I find that so interesting as as a woman. I think um, it's often quite gendered, and a lot of the research points towards that as well. That many um, many of us are not encouraged to feel our sadness or to feel all of our emotions. So there is a tendency, it, it starts, I think, from around the age of 10 in boys to reach for anger from the shelf of the, maybe the bookshelf of emotions, reach for mm-hmm. anger when really it's sadness. And for women, it can often manifest in frustration, in a feeling of powerlessness, um, crying through tears. Actually, there's not much difference in in crying between men and women, but women tend to cry from frustration a little more because we feel powerless. And so I think, again, it's it's not quite, it's not the response to the true emotion that we are feeling. And if we are able to get in touch with the granularity of our emotion, we are able to process it so much, so much better. Mm. Um, and I think of it, it's kind of unavoidable. So we may as well know how to handle it. So that was what I was trying to get at, I think, in the book. Yeah. And you said there it's more of a recent phenomena. Um, what what makes you say that? Oh, well, it's been so interesting looking into it. I think um, I, I spoke to lots of historians and in the UK, at Queen Mary University, there's a um, the history of emotions uh, department and they look at just our different approaches to, to crying, um, to sadness, to melancholy throughout the years. And actually, I think it was Charles Darwin who said famously that there was no purpose to tears. They served no, no use at all. And actually, we know now that that's wrong. It's, um, it's not that we sluice out any negative emotions. It's that we express our sorrow and in doing so, we are comforted by the people around us. We feel better for having expressed it. So, um, historically, people were a bit better at expressing their emotions. In the UK, I'll I'll speak to that bit first. But um, I think we were better at our emotions until, I guess, uh, World War II often comes up in in the idea of this uptight, um, the keep calm and carry on, Winston Churchill's approach of of just getting through the war. And those weren't his words, the, the keep calm and carry on. But I think many scholars will point to the fact that there was no other option. And so Churchill, despite experiencing big emotions and, and cried frequently in his private life and famously experienced depression, um, there was no other option. And so whole generations just had to get on with it. And before that as well, in the First World War, the scale of the losses um, and the, the flu epidemic, the scale of, of the mourning that people were having to go through meant that such um, grand expressions of grief that we see uh, probably pre-Victorian era were no longer acceptable. So even Queen Victoria, when she was mourning her husband for all of those decades, even at the time, people were starting to say, oh, isn't this a bit much? Um, and again, it was quite gendered. So it's kind of OK for women, but not really for men. So I think that the scale of the loss has meant that at some point in the 20th century, it became not OK. And um in the US, a lot of the scholars that I spoke to pointed to the idea of, um, you know, the pioneer spirit was an idea of being quite forward facing, the idea of not dwelling on any, on any, um, on any barriers or any um, hurdles, but really pushing through with a very forward looking approach. And so actually, then that doesn't allow for staying in any sadness or, or wallowing or exploring even those emotions to an extent that might be helpful. So I think the US and the UK are are particularly defined by by our history in that way that that has made the experience of feeling sadness so alien for many of us in a way that I don't think is helpful. Hmm. 
It's so interesting, uh, the history of emotions and the cultural influence on on emotions is a, a fascinating thing. There, there's a quote by uh, Proust that has always stuck with me. I, I think I, I saw it a few years back. It's like, we are healed of a suffering only by experiencing it to the full. And it, it's it's fascinating, but it makes me ask, like, how do we know? Like, how does one know that they have experienced a particular sadness, uh, you know, like fill in the blank of whatever it may be to the to the full? Anything come up there, Helen? It's so interesting. Quite often when I speak to people about this, um, there is a desire to kind of quantify it and to say, well, how many days must I be sad for? And it's so human, <laughs> yeah. right? It's such a natural thing. Think, when will this be over, this uncomfortable experience? And from speaking to the psychologists and, and sociologists and psychiatrists uh, for, the, for my research, it seems, uh, unfortunately, it's kind of a grey area. And there's so much about the brain that the, the, the best minds in the world still don't understand. So, I mean, what hope do we have? But I think um, it just seems to be that we have to ride it like a wave. We have to sit in it and then it is more likely to pass on more quickly. So we can't quite put a, a nice, neat number on it much as we might like to. Um, but we can we can agree to sit in it for a while. And actually, the, the cost of not doing that has been shown to be quite detrimental to our mental health. There's been studies showing that if we aim to avoid sadness even a little, even to the extent that we probably already do in our normal lives now, we we limit our existence, we limit all of our emotions, and our normal sadness can end up tipping into something more serious. So then we are putting ourselves at risk of depression um, or depressive symptoms. So by by sitting in it, however uncomfortable it's it's better for us in the long run. And interesting talking about Proust that um, one of the historians of emotion that I was spoke, speaking to points to the French Revolution as being a real tipping point in the British approach to emotion because the, um, I mean, the sort of the long-standing rivalry between the UK and France meant that Brits said, oh, well, we're not the French. We're not going to have these big, you know, um, expressive bouts of emotion. Look where that gets you. So this idea to define yourself against the French is part of what um, I think has made the Brits so repressed historically. So, But Proust, of course, was right. And I always like the, um, <laughs> I live in Denmark now, and the, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard um, explained that there was like a bliss in melancholy. And this idea that actually, if we can just sit in that kind of bittersweet pain, it's there's something quite strangely perversely pleasurable about it because it shows that we care it shows that we're human sadness is the emotion that lets us connect with other people it makes us feel part of something so even though it feels a little bit uncomfortable i'm squirming i know it's an audio um, medium but still it's um if we really sink into it and let those those emotions kind of wash over us it does feel slightly better in the long run yeah it's so interesting. I um, we we talk quite a bit on um this newsletter that we do about seeing maybe some of these ancient timeless practices as lifelong. Like, how do we see them as as infinite past? It's called perennial meditations. I'm a fan of this word perennial, but I don't know. Like, why not think about sadness? in that same way you you think of like the loss of 
a loved one or you know any sort of any sort of thing that brings about sadness well why can't it just be an infinite thing that we carry on i don't mean in some sort of debilitating way you know where it's like getting into depression things like that that's not what i'm talking about but kind of that particular quote that you were saying from uh from kierkegaard as a way of um you know this is something that is meaningful this is something that is important to me you think of of a like a parent that has um lost a child um I'm assuming, you know, that sadness would never leave. You may not always be in it. You might not always be thinking about that. But um, I would think it would be normal four decades afterwards to still experience that. It's it's this like infinite um, thing or maybe infinite's not the right word, but, you know, something that lives along along with you. Yeah, I think you're right. And actually, you know, my my professional reason for writing the book was was this work on the Atlas of Happiness and seeing a reader response to that that was so different to what I expected. But from a personal perspective, absolutely as you say, four decades. So my when I was growing up, I had a little sister and she died of cot death, it was called at the time, um, sudden infant death syndrome. And yeah, of course that 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 rift on my mother and the whole family, those the, that sadness kind of ripples out through generations. And growing up as I did in the 1980s and 90s in the UK, there wasn't that space to deal with it. And yeah, it does feel infinite. There is no end to it. Um, but we do know now that ignoring it is the very worst thing you can do. It doesn't help at all. And there wasn't any... Um, capacity to talk about it. There wasn't counselling offered at that time where I was. And so the idea that you just, um, you'd sort of cheer up, slap on a smile and carry on, I just feel is so harmful now that it's kind of become a kind of a vocation to try and spread the word on that, however painful it might be. And I think um, you mentioned the, the Stoics and I was very interested in Stoicism for a while. I'm thinking, well, maybe this is the answer. And then uh, the more I researched into this and spoke to um, big proponents of, of Stoicism and and then people on the other side saying, well, no, that actually the idea of um, trying not to feel anything isn't what's going to work for me. So I see there's so much great about the Stoics, but the idea of um, of thinking, oh, well, this is just how things are and not getting riled up doesn't work for me and my family and and what we've been through. So I think, as well as the Kierkegaard quote, I, I cling to the idea of of it being a useful force and a real life force, even sadness, as well as this feeling of connection. There's been great research, I'm sure you've, you've come across it from the University of New South Wales, that's found that being temporarily sad um, can even be good for us. It helps us to um, to be more perseverant. It increases our attention to detail. It makes us more grateful for what we've got. It really makes us a nicer, better person. And when we are feeling very sad and feeling like we are cracked open, that's when kind of humanity floods in. So yeah, I absolutely believe it's it's very worthwhile. The, the cost of not doing it is so terrible. It's not worth comprehending. So we mm. just have to feel those sad feelings when they come up. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to ask, 
Helen, um, you know, this book, I, I really have, um, immense respect of how much of your life is in it. You know, this honest, um, you know, integration of your own emotions and life and challenges. How did you get comfortable doing that? Like, you know, comfortable putting that on, on the page, well, uh, years of therapy, Joshua. Um, I'm a big <laughs> fan of, of talking cures. I find them hugely helpful. I've also tried antidepressants over the years. I've, I've done it all. Um, and, and actually, it's the, it's the talking that, that's so helpful. And I think so professionally, I've, uh, pro- professional therapy, I've benefited from hugely over the years. And also, by nature of my job, I've been a journalist for 20 years now. I get to be... Um, nosy for a living i get to be curious for a living and start conversations just as we're having right now and i get to meet people and and watch their kind of shells crack open and and see the vulnerabilities that other people have and i guess that's given me a lot of strength and a, and a lot of um feeling as though i am very committed to to sharing this i had enough people say well it would, this would be helpful if you could say that you experienced this from uh, eating disorders to to depression to um, some really kind of troubling times that that befall all of us. I am certainly not special. We all experience losses and disappointments and everybody's life has tough stuff in it. There's nothing special about me. But if I am able to express it in a way that is the one thing I can do, I can communicate. So (laughs) if I'm able to do that in a way that might help other people, then that has to be worthwhile. So um, I think from my previous books, I've had um, big responses and they've been very celebratory. And this book, what I found so interesting is that the responses have all been intensely private and vulnerable, but I have always felt very honoured from the people who have got in touch to share their story. And I still, I feel like it's an open therapy clinic that every day I, I have dialogues with people who say, this helped me and and I'm trying this. And what do you think of this? And I think the more we can talk about it, the more the more we can help, really. Well, I'm glad that you did. And I, I really find it um, inspiring, helpful. I listened to um, an episode of your podcast in, in preparation for this, your conversation with Kate Bowler. Um, and just, um, you know, another person that's really honest and, and clear, um, you know, about the challenges that can arise in the human experience. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I just, um, yeah, I want to say thank you. Well, Kate's a that. very special human being. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, so you write in the book, I, I got a, a little quote here. You say, we live in a culture where distress demands to be alleviated and sadness is supposed to be solved rather than experienced. So I'm I'm curious a little bit about like a tension between I, I get what you mean in terms of it's something to be solved, like check off of a to-do list or, or something like that, and then press on. But then like there's also this other thing of like untangling, understanding, you know, living with, like trying to make sense a bit of the the sadness, which is maybe sometimes done in therapy, but, you know, sometimes, I mean, we're not always in therapy. Sometimes we're, 
you know, in a room alone and we're trying to make sense of things. So how do you think about that tension of not necessarily trying to solve it, but also like trying to make make sense of things? I think it goes back to what you mentioned at the beginning of your question there about um, not distracting ourselves with other things. I think Mm. we all have these little devices in our pockets now that can um, alleviate discomfort of boredom, for example, or any situation we're not particularly enjoying or happy in or interested in even. There's a great study to show that so many of us, if we're watching a movie or a TV show and it gets a bit tense or a bit uncomfortable, or, or maybe there's a sex scene and our mother's in the room or just something, we will just turn to our phone because we can't quite bear that discomfort. And you think, well, that's mad. In the olden days, you would just have to suck it up um, <laughs> and and just ride that feeling a bit. So I think um, it's it's not making ourselves so busy all the time so that we don't face these things. And I've been so guilty of that in the past. I will happily fill my day in half hour segments from <laughs> from dawn until dusk so that there is no time to think, no time to, to stop. And my heart is racing all the time. Um, so I think the first thing is stopping that. Busyness is not a badge of honour. It is daft. And there is enough research now to show that actually when we rest, and it doesn't have to be lying on a couch or, or you know, in therapy, it can be active rest. It can be going for a walk. It can be just doing something where we take some time out and we're not filling um, our schedule all the time. That's when our brain is really smart and our brain can start sort of figuring things out. The cogs can turn. And then some problems really are, to mix my metaphors, but like a knot a really tough knot that you cannot undo from some shoes that you really want to wear, but the knot is too tightly woven. And so I think if we try to be a bit patient, which again, I'm terrible at, I'm not patient at all. I have three small children. Anyone who you'll ever speak to who'll have met me will tell you that I'm not patient, especially my children, but trying to be patient to deal with these things. And of course, Therapy is a, a massive, um, it shouldn't be a luxury, but it is not accessible for so many. So often, as you say, we are in a room by ourselves, like you and I are right now, albeit we are able to connect and speak like this. And so we have to kind of be okay with that being by ourselves. And a lot of people find that very uncomfortable as well. A lot of people, actually. I mean, I, I grew up with just me and my mum after my sister died and my dad left and I was on my own a lot. So that has been one bit of training of life that I'm kind of okay with. But my my husband even, for example, doesn't like being by himself at all and wants to fill his time and have social activities and have somebody with him all the time. And, and I do think that is another type of distraction. So we have to, yeah, allow some space really to, to breathe and think and and firstly, then be aware of what knots we need to untangle and then try and work out how we're going to do it and whether we need help. And if we do, there's no shame in that. And we can talk to other people. A lot of the therapists I spoke to, I felt were very generous in that they said, the most important thing is that you talk to somebody who will listen without interruption and without judgment. It does not need to be a professional. And I thought this was mm. very helpful to share. I mean, they're doing themselves out of business here, but this idea that you can make a pact with someone. I call it the buddy system. And I have a very good friend called Jill. And we will be each other's buddies. So that if someone's having a terrible day, um, 
there's a sort of a bat light we can send out and we will talk and she will talk and I will listen and then I will talk and she will listen. And it's hugely helpful and hugely therapeutic uh, in the most pure sense of the word. So I think, uh, yeah, being able to be by ourselves and then knowing when we need to maybe reach out to have somebody somebody else around is really helpful. That was a rambling answer. Apologies. (laughs) No, that's great. Thank you for that. I I definitely, uh, I think the listeners will, will enjoy that, that practical, um, you know, takeaway there that it, you know, it doesn't always have to be, um, particular therapist, but could be that. And addition to, you know, there's much wisdom and, you know, friendship and, and listening to one another. Um, I'm, I'm curious of, uh, Maybe a topic, I guess, that has probably come up on this podcast and many others of, you know, how does the world work? Like making sense of of some of these things. Like we all have maybe worldviews of things that we're not quite aware of. And, and something that you write in the book that is if we learn to accept that things are going to be hard, um, you know, we're better equipped to deal with you know, some of these experiences that, that bring about sadness or even extreme sadness? Like, how do you think about cultivating some of these, um, you know, world worldviews that um, can help equip us to, to navigate life? I guess I would say that there are two things there. There's, there's the it, it's kind of not our fault. We've been taught from a very young age that if yeah. something's hard, oh, just do the next thing or, or battle away <laughs> and work harder. And actually, yeah. life will be hard. And um, I'm now very careful to, if if you see a child falling over, your natural impulse is, oh, it'll be okay, don't cry. And actually, that's really unhelpful because um, crying is normal and you don't want to attach shame to any of these feelings that are perfectly natural. And uh, And sometimes it isn't okay. And that if we are expecting things to always be okay, we will feel like we have failed in some way when they're not. And there are structural inequalities and there are there are big things we have to contend with that sometimes things will not be okay and that is not our fault. It's the first thing I would always um, try to address. The second is I found really helpful for me is, is around getting some perspective. And I tend to do that in, in, in two ways. For me, um, books are a massive big insight into other worlds, into paths that we have not chosen and lives we haven't lived. And you are literally, it's the ultimate exercise in empathy. You're putting yourself into someone else's shoes as you as you imaginatively um, read, read a book and think about how those lives can be. So that's really helpful. And then I guess it's that, it's that idea of doing something for someone else. It's acts of service. It's such a sort of basic tenet of many religions and, and philosophies, but it's something that many feel like they don't have time for. Um, it's not necessarily rewarded uh, culturally, let alone certainly not financially, but it's, it's. I guess I always point to in The Simpsons, the idea of Ned Flanders, like the do-gooder was sort of seen as a bad thing for many years. And actually that's mad, you know, someone who cares about their community and tries to do good and tries to be helpful and reach out is always so helpful. It's a, it's a really good thing to do and not to instrumentalize it, but it always makes the person who is reaching out feel better as well. So I know that when I um, make an effort to, to volunteer and and uh, take part in the charities that I work with, um, 
you get a bit of perspective. You you get involved with lives that are not your own. You um, you feel beyond your own problems. You maybe are able to share some wisdom from what you've experienced, uh, just as you learn from the people who you spend time with. So I, I think getting some perspective uh, is really helpful. Or you can just climb mm. a really big hill. Hills are good for perspective. <laughs> yeah. There's some other authors that talk about uh, a similar thing that that you're mentioning here. I think of um, Pema Chodron has like uh, a book welcoming or um, yeah, welcoming the unwelcome or Thich Nhat Han kind of like saying hello to suffering. You know, there's some sort of how do we lower our maybe instant resistance to negative emotions? How do you think about that in your daily life? Any sort of practical tips that maybe allow you to, to open yourself up to maybe, you know, any, any unpleasant emotions that come up? I think of the um, the Desmond Tutu. I'm sorry to say that suffering is not optional quite a lot. And I, I interviewed yeah. his daughter and his granddaughter who are amazing and inspirational. And I think um, uh, the idea of I think it's really hard. You know, I'm a layperson. I am. I'm not the expert here. I'm the the curious uh, explorer of of the world. I'm a journalist. So I think when I was looking into this all, I had tried to push away the sadness, just as many of us do for so long, and to push away the pain, um, and then the emotional pain of facing um, what I and my family had been through with the help of therapy, with the help of the research I was doing, was was a sort of a big, I can almost feel it in my body as I talk to you about it now. I can almost feel it in my chest, that kind of opening up um, and letting the world flood in. And then also not to instrumentalize my children, but I mean, childbirth is no walk in the park. And and knowing that anyone who's been through a, um, you know, an operation or any kind of physical trauma in some way, um, trauma with a small t, you realize that good grief that was horrific but here I am and I am still standing and my word and I, I like the um the the Japanese idea of kintsugi the idea of repairing broken ceramics with um molten uh with a ceramic with a, repairing ceramics with metallic lacquer so that the cracks instead of being concealed are highlighted in pure gold and they're celebrated and and the beauty is because of the breaks not in spite of them and I think of us in that way, I guess, that we are battle scars and we all have scars of some kind or another. And that's what makes us human. So I think it's taken a lot of time. I don't have a, a magic formula for that, but I guess the experience of life and learning to um, process emotional pain and physical pain uh, has has been hugely informative for me. And I guess if I were offering advice to my younger self or, or anyone at the beginning of their journey of learning how to be sad, I think it would be that we will all face these things. So when they come, be aware of them and and be open to them. And of course, no one's going to seek out pain, but when we experience it, we, we will get through it. And um, when we experience loss and heartache, everyone has their heart broken at one, one time. There's There's nothing like I'm sure you remember when you're a teenager, before you have your heart broken for the first time, you are a different human being. It just changes you. It just does. And so that emotional pain 
which may sound trivial, but there, there's no hierarchy of sadness. If you are 15 and you are experiencing your first heartache, that may be the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. You feel like you will break, but you don't and you carry on and you know you are stronger for next time. So I guess it's being aware of all those experiences and and trying to ride them like a really badass wave, I'd say. <laughs> nice. It's such a a beautiful thing in the way of, uh, like, as you mentioned, curiosity, this human experience thing of, um, you know, there's some of this stuff of like, uh, the philosophers talk about like it's neither good nor bad type of stuff. And you get into like the subjective objective type of thing, but it is like, um, an interesting thing of, um, like even quote unquote, like negative emotions, like I'm putting the negative part on it, you know, and it does this like, you know, weeds in the grass of this like unwanted thing. Like I'm putting that like it doesn't mean that, you know, that these weeds are any less. It doesn't mean that this particular emotion is in some way less than or negative. Um, so it, it, in my own experience, it, it just gets it gets a tricky it's a tricky thing. Like, um, we, we talk about quite a bit on this podcast of like, try to anyway of like practical wisdom. Like, what does this look like in daily life? What are the obstacles that stand in the way? And it, it seems like that's one that comes up to me is, is our own language and like how we're actually labeling things, which I just did. You know, and it's like I didn't recognize it till after after I said it. <laughs> in your in your defense, you did bunny ears around it, but um, <laughs> you're right. But I think the first step then is to recognize that you were. I I don't know if you were born in the U.S., but you are living in the U.S. now. I was yeah. born in the U.K., raised in the U.K., and culturally, that is the way that those cultures, for the large part define sadness. So it's it's not our fault. We are now educating ourselves and um, fortunate enough to um, be able to meet other people and make connections that are expanding our mind in that way. But had we been born somewhere else, had we been born um, as part of Maori culture, for example, the idea of strength and showing emotions are one and the same. There isn't this hierarchy in the same way. Um, the idea of the, the hacker dance I was really interested is to is to fully get in touch with your emotions in a way that many people don't know they are capable of and then express them in a group setting. I mean, which just blows my mind and feels like we'd all have been spared a lot of therapy had we all done that as teenagers. <laughs> um, but and then again, you look at uh, East Asian culture, the idea of you can be happy and sad. There is that nuance in Japan that there's a great um, piece of research where Japanese psychologists were asked about melancholy and they said, it never occurred to us that that was a problem or that we should try and medicate it away because it's it's normal, it's part of life. And there are so many studies that you and I will have grown up with uh, along the lines of the fact that um, happier people are healthier. And you still see, I've written many of the articles myself in my younger years, I didn't know in my defence, but the idea that if we are happier, we are healthier. And of course, there are some good habits that if we are in a good place mentally, we will engage in that will, you know, have that sort of um, virtuous circle trying to make us feel better. But studies have also shown that it, you are being sad only makes you sick if you are terrified of being sad. So mm. US respondents to a study were found to be the most susceptible to poor health outcomes 
when they reported also feeling sad. Whereas in Japan, it makes no difference. And they're really good comparisons to make because they're both, um, you know, really established healthcare systems, wealthy countries. But, but yeah, in Japan, being sad will not make you unhealthy because it's just emotion. It's, it's not good or bad. It doesn't it have a negative or positive connotation. So I think recognizing that we are a product of our surroundings is really helpful to cut ourselves some slack, but also allow ourselves to grow from that point and decide that we're going to do things differently, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it's so fascinating. And it's like, we can miss um, those cultural differences. Um, I know a, a previous guest I had on a, a while back, the listeners might might remember, Owen Flanagan, how to do things with emotions. And did a a kind of worldwide thing and talks about some of these different words of how they show up things like anger, shame, happiness, like across different places. And one of the things he talked about is uh, even the titles of books, titles and covers of books in different places. And obviously you've written a number of books that have probably been, uh, you know, published in different places. Do you see that in yours in the way of titles and covers of how they show up um, differently? That's so interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but uh, now you mention it, yes. Um, I don't know how much <laughs> I can share at this point. But yes, I will say that my next book coming out has a different title in the US to the UK equivalent. And it is a title that still prioritises happiness in a way that mm. um, wasn't my first intention when I wrote the book. So yeah, I think that's certainly true. Yeah, absolutely. And I just did a documentary for the BBC about um about the the history of sadness, as we spoke about a little bit, but also exploring the the Portuguese phenomenon um, of um, saudade or this idea of um, the melancholy of of sadness, the, the the pleasure and pain in in sorrow and loss and and fado music. And um, we spent time in Portugal, and I've interviewed lots of people in Brazil, and and there again, there's a different approach to happiness and sadness, and it's it's more accepted that sadness will happen. And look, here's a whole genre of music to enjoy whilst you're feeling <laughs> sad in a way that I guess, you know, th- there's the blues. But um, I guess for for me coming from the UK, I didn't have that tradition. And spending time in Portugal researching that was a real eye opener to to the idea that even just a few hours south geographically from by plane from where I lived is a really different approach. So it's all so specific to location and, um, yeah, there's a whole world out there, I guess. Yeah, that's fascinating. Is that documentary already out, Helen? That is, yes. Um, It came out earlier this year. So that was on the BBC World Service and it's called A Short History of Sadness. Okay, great. We'll link it in in the show notes. That sounds really interesting. I've got just a couple questions. Our, our time has flown by here pretty quick, but um, you, you touched on it not too long ago in the way of expectations. I made a um, another quote here from the book. You say a better idea is lowering our expectations and swapping perfectionism for something the experts call adaptive optimism. Could you say more there? Yes. So, um, I'd be so interested to hear your career path and aspirations when you started out. But when I started out, it was very much 
a straight line is that you go to school and you um, you graduate, you get a job. You the idea was you, you get a house, you you get a partner, you you have kids. There, there was a very sort of straight line, and um, I think growing up when there were setbacks, which inevitably there are in all of our lives, um, it was never sort of okay to cut yourself some slack. And I grew up in Margaret Thatcher's Britain, where we are all taught to aim high. And if you weren't aiming high, then you were really being a slacker. So um, the idea that you could lower your expectations when you experienced loss or sadness was anathema. And and actually, I think that's really helpful. I think it's when touching on what we spoke about at the beginning about a timeline almost for your sadness there is no timeline but certainly if you have the same expectations of your uh, productivity or your um how much you're going to have massive success at work or um how much you're going to go out partying when you've just experienced a loss or a massive disappointment is not helpful it's not realistic so if we can lower our expectations, which goes against so much of what we are taught in the UK and the US especially, then we are able to be kind to ourselves. We're able to take our time a bit more. Um, then we're going to have better outcomes. We're going to allow that sadness to to come in. It's again, it's not trying to distract ourselves with busyness and think, well, if I just get that promotion, then I'll be okay. There's um, the idea of optimalism. I think like you know, perfectionism maybe say is a career path that's a straight line, whereas optimalism is more of a squirrely, curved, spiral type thing. And my career has certainly been like that. It's not turned out how I might have expected. It's been a far curvier career path than I could ever have imagined. But that is a wonderful thing. And I am delighted by that and by um, taking opportunities and sometimes saying no to some and just seeing where the wind has taken me has has made for a much more interesting and enriching time, I would say. And on top of that, I also explored the great um, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, uh, used to be at Harvard, has the great idea of um, the fallacy of arrival, which I'm sure you've come across, but this idea that many of us think that when we get to some pre- ordained goal, which may be a promotion, it may be um, winning that squash championship, it may be um, you know, marrying our childhood sweetheart, then our happiness will start, then life will be okay, then we can take our foot off the pedal. When in reality, life doesn't work like that because we get a dopamine hit from the chase. The thrill is literally in the chase. That's what makes us feel good. And when we get the thing we think we wanted, we often feel nothing or massive anticlimax. Um, they sometimes call it uh, summit syndrome. I spoke to some explorers and adventurers, uh, including um, uh, Ben Saunders, who's a, a polar explorer, who talked about getting to the North Pole after years of struggle. I think he was the youngest person ever to reach the North Pole solo. Um, and he thought, oh, actually, it looks a bit shabby. He was just unimpressed. He he worked again <laughs> for years to get to the South Pole. He got there and he thought, oh, again, he felt, just felt a bit lonely and nothing was as good as he thought it might be. And this idea that if we, of course, striving can feel good, but it has to be um, an intrinsic goal rather than an ex external goal or seeking external validation. And even if it's intrinsic, even if it's something as basic as wanting to um, you know, get married and have children, our expectations these days are so high that we are bound to be disappointed at some stage. It's not all going to be okay. I struggled with infertility for years. And when I finally got pregnant, I thought, oh, now it's going to be brilliant. Well, 
there's still tough days. I still get mad with my kids because I am a human being and that is okay. And <laughs> rather than feeling guilt, feeling guilt around it or feeling like I have done life wrong, this just feels like this is what life is. This means we're doing it right. So yes, I think um, optimalism, just doing the doing the best you can, being easy on yourself when times are tough, lowering expectations that when you have just had a shattering disappointment, you are no, probably not going to nail it at work the next day, is a is a much more healthy and fruitful and generous and kind way to go through life. Well, beautiful. This has been a lot of fun, Helen. Um, we've made it to this final wrap-up question, which is a it's a brief, short question, and it's how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? Oh, I I think now it is emotional intelligence, and especially in these days of AI coming to get all of us. Just found out that AI has been used up two of my books trying to teach its friends to make their own books. But the idea of emotional intelligence feels more important than ever. And I think um, increasingly now sadness is going to happen. So we might as well know how to do it right. And and actually, we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. So it's being in touch with our emotions and allowing ourselves to be sad as well. Hmm. Well, great. And again, your book is How to Be Sad. That's what we've been chatting about today. Um, but would you mind taking a moment and sharing a, a little bit about uh, the new book you're working on and any other websites or and things like that you might point our listeners to? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I have a new book about raising children in the Nordic countries and how different it is, the experience of childhood in the Nordic countries from Iceland to Finland to Norway, Sweden, Denmark. And um, so I am now a mother of three and I've been living Danishly for 10 years now and just everything they do is different. I am still, I still have that beginner's mind. I am learning on a daily basis. Every day is a school day. And whenever I speak to people back home, they are regularly shocked by how People do things around here. So I started writing about that. And it's, again, a mix of, of kind of armchair travel and interviews and my own lived experience and um, taking in the different cultures in the Nordics has been fascinating. So that's coming out in the US in July. And that's um, the Danish secret to happy kids. And uh, it's called How to Raise a Viking in the UK. And that comes out in February. And yeah, I'm really proud of it. It's been a real treat to write. So I hope people enjoy it. Nice. Well, we'll link everything in the uh, show notes along with your website and things like that and the uh, and the documentary we discussed. Helen Russell, thank you so much for coming on In Search Wisdom. Thanks so much, Joshua. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.